Welcome to Off The Wagon, a podcast about many different things. Uh, This episode in particular is going to be one of my paranormal-themed episodes, and I'm trying out a new format. You can get in touch to find out and let me know what you think about it. I'm Kian, and I'm sitting here by the fire. Perhaps you can hear it clicking away in the background. Any strange sounds you may hear, well, it's just a result of that. I'm also drinking a large steaming mug of pretty strong coffee. It's uh, a snowy, frosty kind of a night early on in the year. Quite perfect, really, for sitting around the fire and telling a few spooky stories. So I mentioned that there's a new format in this episode. um, And what I'm going to do is I'm going to uh, tell three different stories. I'm going to start with a report about some particular aspect of the supernatural that I'm interested in. I'm then going on to move on to a personal anecdote. And then I'm going to finish up with a piece of fiction. So coming up in this this episode, we have a little bit I've written about the British Bigfoot, which, yes, it's a thing. Uh, I've also got a story coming up about a personal spooky sighting I had, or maybe didn't have, you can decide yourself, while I was working in Canada a few years ago. And lastly, we're going to finish up with a fictitious story I've put together about mysterious creatures over in the Pacific Northwest. So settle down, get yourself a mug of something warm or mm, something cold, depending on how you like your ale, and we'll get stuck in. So first of all, we're going to talk about the mystery of the British Bigfoot. In 2002, an eight-foot-tall beast resembling a yeti with glowing eyes was reported in Boland Park in Northumberland. Around the same time, visitors camping by the lake in the park also reported nighttime growling and stolen fishing equipment. In January 2015, the hugely successful US TV show Finding Bigfoot, known as Not Finding Bigfoot to some, sent their crew to England and Scotland, drawing attention to a heretofore little-known trove of British Bigfoot reports. In September 2016, The Mirror, always a reliable source, published a video of a mysterious, dark, animal-like figure that had been filmed in the forests of the Carefilly Mountains near Cardiff. And in May 2018, Bristol Live reported that a man travelling on a train from Exeter to Bristol saw a huge, hairy, monstrous figure walking along a field outside the city as the train passed by. He described himself as being 100% sure of what he saw. Now, Bigfoot is an American icon. He's, to me, as much a mid-20th century symbol of America as James Dean, or stupidly big cars, or hating communism. He's a symbol that represents the American people's relationship with their natural heritage, their vast landscapes, with the very wild itself. After all, if a creature as huge and spectacular as Sasquatch could remain hidden for so long, that must mean there's a habitat that's big enough for him. Or her, if we're talking about the famous Patterson-Gimlin Bigfoot from that video everybody's seen. That the idea of Bigfoot took off the way it did, that generations of Americans have believed so fiercely in the reality of this beast, tells us something about them. It tells us that they see nature as something big, powerful, and still capable of withholding mysteries from us. Don't get me wrong, the US has done a lot of damage to its natural heritage over the last century in particular, but compared to Europe, there's no question that America has the upper hand when it comes to true wilderness. And so it makes sense that the myth of a beast such as Sasquatch would come to be in a place like the US. It 
seems fitting, doesn't it? But what if I told you that people had been reporting seeing Bigfoot or Bigfoot-like creatures in Britain? Think about the British Isles, a small collection of rainy islands that have been inhabited and farmed intensively for thousands of years. A country that lacks true wilderness except in its northernmost regions. It only has relatively small, disconnected forest cover, except for farms of imported plantation firs, all of which are managed intensely by the Forestry Commission, and whose biggest national parks tend to be semi-natural, also heavily managed open moorlands and grasslands. Not really the sort of place you can imagine a large mysterious hominid like Bigfoot surviving. It sounds impossible, but... Having been reading about the American Bigfoot phenomena pretty much my whole life, I was astonished to find out only last year that there is a small community of cryptid hunters who believe that a variant of Bigfoot is roaming the British Isles too. How strange. I had to know more. I checked out a short documentary on YouTube first. It's called Elusive, to begin my research. This film is mostly a collection of interviews with people who have had encounters with Bigfoot-like creatures, usually in the north of England or Scotland. Now, all the usual problems with witness testimony apply here. If you have any interest in the paranormal, you'll probably have read about the various scientific studies over the years that have shown us that memory really cannot be trusted. But as usual with cases such as these, I was left with the feeling that the witnesses were at least sincere. They certainly believed that they had seen something. I did not get the impression that there are many deliberate hoaxers in this movement. Now, the interviews in Elusive were interesting, but besides that, I didn't find the film got into the subject in the kind of depth I prefer myself. It was happy to simply show the evidence, witness testimony for the most part, and move on. Honestly, it's rare these days that I can engage with material that takes the paranormal at face value, and so literally, without at least addressing the more sceptical takes. Now, the film does address the fact that it it is hard to imagine a flesh-and-blood Bigfoot living in a British ecosystem, but then answers this by saying that, well, either Bigfoot is very clever and very good at hiding, or is perhaps, in fact, a supernatural being who can disappear and teleport and whatnot. This is a classic example of what's called paranormal creep. When Bigfoot first went mainstream in America in the 1950s, there were some precedents, but let's not mess around. This is when it really took off. The phenomena was at first interpreted as if Bigfoot was an unknown but at least physical and mortal animal. That seemed to make sense, and at first quite a few scientists were on board with the idea. After all, such a thing was far from impossible, so it was worth investigating. But as the years went by, and harder evidence failed to turn up, and hoax after hoax was exposed, some believers turned to more mystical theories to explain why Biggie was so good at remaining hidden. Perhaps he was, in fact, a kind of spirit or supernatural being who could vanish and teleport. That's why we couldn't find any proof. It seemed as though some folks would believe anything rather than accept that the lack of proof implied the lack of Bigfoot. And so, the idea of Bigfoot continued in some circles, divorced from its original somewhat scientific origins. This paranormal version of Bigfoot has become really popular over the years, with entire communities of Bigfooters separating themselves entirely from the flesh and blood theorists. In these belief systems, 
a wide range of paranormal phenomena are acceptable and connected to Bigfoot in some way. In these stories, Bigfoot regularly communicates with UFOs, he has a shiny aura, and he communicates with lonely humans on remote mountaintops by leaving patterns and sticks, or by straight up using telepathy with them. It appears to me that it is this later, more mystical version of Bigfoot that has recently been imported to the UK. And from my reading, even the most cursory discussion of how or why a Bigfoot-like creature could be surviving in the British countryside is completely absent from much of the discussion. In most reports, a sighting is reported and that's it. No analysis. It's as if the sightings seem to exist in a context-free vacuum. I saw Bigfoot. Ergo, it must live in the UK. Well, that seems to be as far as things go in many cases. Perhaps it's a symptom of displacement. After all, Bigfoot has no real place in British tradition or folklore. He is, after all, a definitively American monster. This protectiveness over regional monsters is so intense that serious US squatchers, as they like to be called, though I really hate that term personally, they turn up their noses and their baseball caps at the very idea of a British Bigfoot. They think, as I did, that Britain should have no tradition of such sightings. Or does it? The British Bigfoot Sightings Map website has been collecting reports since 2003. I opened the map expecting to find only a few reports, but instead to see a Britain, and to my surprise, Ireland, Tipperary Wolfman anyone, positively overrun with hairy hominids and other critters. Hundreds of encounters are documented, not only in the remote Northlands, but in suburbs and small towns also, all over the highly populated urban south. Bigfoot in your garden. Bigfoot on a bridge. Bigfoot in a graveyard in Basildon. Now the site is an impressive piece of work, with all reports being collated by researcher Deborah Hatswell. It's really, there's an incredible amount of work gone into this, and I reckon anyone with an interest in the paranormal ought to check it out, regardless of what side of the fence you sit on. The variety, the ubiquity, is astonishing. American researchers struggling to ground Bigfoot in flesh and blood ecological terms would just throw their arms up at this. To them, and to me, Bigfoot can just about be considered as a rare, elusive animal that might be hiding out in the remaining wilderness of North America. But this? Bigfoot in Basildon? Okay, so the Basildon sighting was actually a monstrous black dog, a local case of the famous Black Shuck. Not actually a Bigfoot, but I couldn't resist going there. Now, some of these reports go way back. Straight away, I spotted a Victorian-era example from Shropshire on the Welsh border. Famously prolific writer and cryptozoology Nick Redfern collects several of these historical tales of dogmen, monkeymen, and other oddities in his various books and articles, many of these stories dating all back to the 19th century. He has also noted the frequent spectral qualities of these British creatures. They can appear and disappear. Weapons pass through them in some of the reports. The sightings map also lumps in all sorts of crypto critters in its grab bag of Sasquatch reports, including many of the now fashionable Dogman reports. So it's not just Bigfoot in the mix. Again, reading through the wealth of reports, I get that feeling of sincerity. These seem like genuine experiences of something. Many of them are unadorned sightings, 
of out of place or mysterious animals. There's no worldview, no explanation for their presence is offered at all. People are seeing strange things regardless of what they believe. I think what's troubling me here is this lack of context. This is not Bigfoot as a maybe possible real animal, the way he is in America. The United Kingdom likely couldn't sustain such a thing ecologically, and many enthusiasts don't even try to contest this. They don't bring it up. No, this is Bigfoot as a magical teleporting super animal that, I kid you not, according to some believers, might only appear to children. So, according to Harry Rose, who spent two years working with the British Bigfoot community for a photography project, many believers uh, had a sighting of British Bigfoot when they themselves were children. Rose reckons that this belief tends to stick with the people their whole life and shapes who they've come to be. That's how important it is to them. Now, when some people try to make sense of British Bigfoot, they head not to the realms of zoology or ecology, but to folklore. Harry Rose's comments made me think of old European legends of wild men such as Pan and the Green Man. Both are deities associated with the woods and the wild. Both can be seen as protectors of the forest. They are sometimes scary or terrifying, but to a child they could also be seen as protectors, like a giant imaginary friend or guardian angel. Now, this is exactly the way ecologist and science writer Robert Pyle describes Bigfoot in his amazing book, Where Bigfoot Walks. Undoubtedly, to me, one of the most thoughtful books ever written on the subject. If you have any interest, go out and take your, get yourself a copy of that straight away. Pyle sees Bigfoot as the saviour of the forest, the eco-age's latest incarnation of Pan and the Green Man. I like this idea. Bigfoot as metaphor for deeply held convictions. But what does he represent in the UK? An anxiety at our loss of wilderness? A desire to hold on to what we've got left? To re-enchant the landscape and populate it once again with monsters and mystery? Perhaps each age and each continent gets the Bigfoot they deserve. Now, just before you peg me as a hopeless skeptic, I'd like to say one thing to show that I do like to keep the door on these things open, if just a crack. I've lived for several years in more or less remote regions of the UK myself. Now, some of them were forested, some of them were very flat and open, the kind of place where you'd expect to see any large animals from miles away if they were there. Well, in all of these places, there were breeding populations of deer living somewhere nearby. Now, sometimes I saw deer scat. That's scientist's word for poo. Sometimes I would see where the deer had bedded down in the long grass, but I can count on one hand how many times I actually saw deer in those four years. And then I remember that it's not impossible for a large animal to make its way among us unnoticed. So that was my report on the bizarre phenomena of the British Bigfoot. Like I said, I'd never heard about it until relatively recently. If you have any thoughts or queries or any sightings yourself you'd like to report, uh, please do send them in. You can find me on Twitter. I'm still active occasionally. Uh, you can find me on at Strange Ireland, named after my older podcast. Now, I'd like to share a little personal anecdote 
It kind of goes along, or at least complements, the first story I've told. This is based on something that happened to me a couple of years ago. I was working in Canada. Now, I had a job working in a fairly remote location at a kind of an outdoor science education place. And it was about 40 minutes walk in the woods away from the nearest tiny little town. Now, my job was very intense. I had a lot of responsibility. I tended to work from very early to very late. And I was living in a little cabin, kind of like a Unabomber style cabin, if you've seen that Netflix series. And really, whenever I got a little bit of time off, all I wanted to do was get off site and go clear my head. The nearest tiny, tiny town, barely even worthy of the name, to be honest, was about a 40 minute walk, like I said, through some fairly serious woodland. Now, this was up in central Ontario's uh, cabin country, as Canadians tend to call it. Basically, it's the part of the country where people have second homes where they go for the summer. So it's not fair to say that there was nobody around. There were quite a few uh, holiday homes, as we Irish call them, but they were well separated and each one had a huge property. So even though I was by the shore of several lakes as I walked and there were houses around, they were very well separated. Uh, the track I walked on was not very wide and at night time it was very, very dark and there were no lights around. It was a time of year when there weren't that many people in the houses either. I was very into podcasting at the time as I am now and what I would do on a day off was I would walk into the nearby town to get a few things, pick up a few things, uh, do some shopping, sometimes stop off for a cheeky beer at the local craft brew. But that walk through the forest was amazing. It would, I really do recommend anyone to check out uh, central or northern Ontario in the autumn. It was really magical. But I started to, you know, get a little bit spooked sometimes and I would see things moving in the forest. I was listening to some, a lot of paranormal podcasts at the time and if you've listened to the show before, you know I'm more or less lean on the side of scepticism, but you know, people say there are no atheists in foxholes. I would say there are no hardcore sceptics uh, on a dark, spooky night when you're on your own in the woods either, especially when you're listening to the kind of things that I was. Anyway, on one of these nights, I walked off the trail because I thought I saw something in the forest, uh, and I was on somebody's property, to be sure, but that house itself was so far away it was actually out of view. This was despite the fact that the trees were starting to lose their leaves. So I could see from quite far around me. It was getting dusky and I didn't have a great vision of what was going on, but I could see whether or not there was anyone or anything there. I stopped to have a little rustle among the leaves upon the ground when I turned and saw something behind me that to this, to this day I swear it was, had not been there just a moment before. It seemed to be a very large black dog. In the gloom, I pretty much only saw it in silhouette. It reminded me of something similar to maybe a Great Dane. The dog absolutely had not been there just a moment before. I got a little bit freaked out and I started to take a few steps backwards towards the road again. Within two or three feet, the dog seemed to melt away from view. It never made a sound. I continued on my way towards the town, quite rattled to be honest. Uh, when I, the time came for me to come back again, I got very spooked out when I passed that particular part of woods, but nothing happened and there was nothing to be seen. Of course, anything is possible. Uh, the human mind, as we know, is very good at seeing patterns and random data, and we're very good at, we are pretty much genetically programmed, in fact, to see things, like especially predators, that are not necessarily there. But a few aspects of folklore that I read about over the years did creep into my head. 
Obviously in Britain there's a very um, long-established tradition of mysterious spooky black dogs that appear to travellers at night. I've already mentioned the black shuck in my first segment. Funny that the only time in my life I might ever have a, an encounter with something like that was not in Britain, but in the wilds of Canada. So out of all the strange things that I may have heard about, or that you may hear me tell on this podcast, I have to say that's the only time I ever feel like I saw a physical manifestation of something that could have been a little bit weird myself. I'm going to round out the episode with a fictional story. This is called The Washington Sound Map. Now, my fictional stories that I've been writing recently fall under a category that I'm calling Wide Atlantic Weird, being that they are a collection of stories with connections both to Ireland and to America, uh, and I include Canada in that too. I'm Irish, but I've spent a bit of time living in America and Canada, and I was very affected by the culture there. I made a lot of connections and a lot of good friends. I found a lot of aspects of the folklore and urban legend stories in both countries to be quite similar. So in these stories, I'm trying to bridge that gap a little bit. So this is the Washington Sound Map. Received via email, August 2018. Hi, Kian. Call me Claire Redfield. I'm a fan of the show, and I'm especially enjoying the listener-submitted stories, and I have a story myself that I think will be suitable for inclusion, if you can bring yourself to believe it. In late August 2013, I was just out of college, and I was hiking a section of the famous Pacific Crest Trail. The year before, I had read Wild by Cheryl Strayed, and like many others, I was inspired to lace up a pair of boots and follow her out into the wilderness. Also like many others, I had never even heard of the PCT before reading the book, and I was probably a bit underprepared for the reality of it. Especially considering I'm from Wicklow, where the biggest wilderness I had access to was the Wicklow Mountains. And while it's just possible to get lost in those mountains, a small number of people do every year, it's difficult to feel that the area is big enough to hide anything serious from humanity. Washington State, of course, is different. Not being too ambitious, my plan was to spend simply 10 days trekking through Washington's Eagle Cap Wilderness, a solo through-hike. I didn't have too much time as I was on holiday from my job in Ireland, but I wanted to sample some real wilderness. Eagle Cap stretches for literally hundreds of thousands of acres, but I hit the maps and chose a route that allowed me to reach the trail from the highway, hike for just over a week, and get back to civilization easily after that. But even this minor section of the PCT took me through the kind of open spaces I had no idea could exist. Within two days I broke out of the green tunnel of forest that had encased me, and first saw the pine-clad slopes of Caribou Canyon and the chalky peaks of Sawtooth Ridge. Emerging onto a trail that ran alongside a vast cliff, I yelled joyfully, hearing my words roll down to the tiny river far below and up the forested hills and come right back to my ear. I saw many incredible things over the next week, but it was the sounds of the wild that really gripped my imagination. Here there were no engines, no electronic hum or hiss. Instead, the roar of a creek or the night howls of a distant wolf reverberated for miles, with no man-made sound pollution to muddy the aural map of the landscape. By day eight, when I landed badly on my left ankle clearing a steep bluff and decided it was best to head back to the highway a couple of days early, I was not too disappointed. I'd seen and heard all that I had hoped to, 
and I had stories and adventures in my head that I knew I'd never forget. According to the map, there was an old logging trail that would get me back to the road in about half a day. Of course, walking with a swollen ankle turned out to be tougher than I'd hoped. It was getting dusky by the time I made it to the highway. The mosquitoes were out and the crickets were chirping, and though I was closer to civilization than I had been in a week, my sense of danger was suddenly alerted. I was a woman travelling alone, after all, and I hadn't hitchhiked before. I wished it hadn't been so dark, or so late. The road was deserted. I couldn't be fussy about which ride to take. I turned on my mobile, which had been dormant for the last week. Even here, by the main road, there was no signal. If I got into trouble... I hadn't had very long to worry about this when a pair of headlights pierced the gathering gloom. It was a pickup truck, the kind you really don't want stopping for you at night. At first it didn't look as though it was going to slow down. In fact, it blew right past me before juddering to a halt. After a moment's hesitation, I picked up my backpack and strolled towards the vehicle. What choice did I have? I heard angry words from within the cab as I approached. Two men were arguing. It sounded as though one of them hadn't wanted to stop for me. I got closer, and I saw that they were an old man with a beard and a younger man who was probably his son. Both were wearing trucker hats and flannels, the kind of guys you really don't want stopping for you at night. In the back of the truck was something bulky and dark, covered with a tarp. As I approached, I noticed something long sticking out from under the tarp. A foot. A big old foot, with five splayed toes shining in the moonlight. I knew now that something was very wrong. A yell escaped from my mouth as I stepped backwards. I leaned on my bad ankle. A wave of pain shot through me and I almost fell over. The cab door swung open and the younger man, his eyes wild, charged me, wrapped his arms around me. I screamed, but pain and surprise prevented me from taking any more effective action. The man shoved me into the cab, bashing my head off the side of the door and squeezed in beside me. Inside, it stank like an abattoir. Both of them yelled. The door was slammed shut and the older man gunned the engine. And then something huge came out of the woods towards the truck. Fingers stretched out towards the window, inches from my face. And the lonely road was filled with a sound that I'll never forget. A roar that was not that of any animal. I saw its furious face for a second, and then we were away, and the white lines of the road flew under us, taking us farther and farther from the horror. I screamed and sobbed until my heart stopped hammering, and I realised that the two men had saved me. They told me that I was in no danger. The next town was fifty miles away, and we'd be there in a little while. They'd find a motel or a hospital if I needed one. Their names were Taylor and Buck, his son. They were locals just back from a hunting expedition. It was obvious from my accent that I wasn't from around here. So what in the hell had I been doing out in the woods like that? I started to explain my sense of normality returning. And then I remembered the monster, the shape from the woods. And I grew excited. That hadn't been a moose or a bear or any such thing. It was Bigfoot, the big guy himself. Hell, we just had a damn Sasquatch encounter and we'd live to tell the tale. Surely, I said... That was something worth getting pumped about. But my two rescuers remained subdued. And then I remembered the foot sticking out of the back of the truck. The absurdly big foot. 
You killed one, I whispered. They explained. Just an hour before they met me, they had been returning from a two-day hunting trip in the Eagle Cap Mountains. In the early evening gloom, something big had run out in front of their truck, denting the fender pretty bad, but doing more damage to itself. It stumbled about on the road, bleeding from its forehead, then collapsed. They measured it. The thing was eight feet tall. It was broadly simian and covered with brown hair, but it had a wide forehead like a man, and its eyes held the light of an intelligent creature before they went out forever. Choking on the stench, I reached behind me and lifted the tarp refraction. There wasn't much space to move it, but I caught a glimpse of a hairy, domed skull. For a moment I was sad, but a new thought filled me with excitement. This was huge, I told the others. You've got a Bigfoot body. They were going to be the ones to finally prove the existence of this mythical creature, and I was a part of their story. Everyone in the world was going to want to hear about this. We would be famous. I couldn't believe it. After all the years of speculation, all the hoaxes, faked footprints, blurry 8mm film reels, after all the dumb TV shows about middle-aged guys scaring each other in the woods, knocking sticks against trees and finding nothing. Earlier, before my hike, I'd met a hunter who told me why he didn't believe in the big guy, because though parts of the Pacific Northwest sure seemed remote, the truth was every inch of it had been picked over by hunters and rangers at one time or another, and we'd never even found so much as a skull. Now these two guys actually had a corpse in the back of their truck. It was earth-shaking. Only... Why didn't they seem as cheerful about this as I was? Because, Buck said when I asked, we're not out of the woods yet, miss. Taylor squeezed the accelerator, kept his eyes on the black road, and a chilling roar floated down from the mountain, through the trees, and washed over us. My heart drummed. The sound was primeval. It was the sound of a vast wilderness that didn't care about man and his doings. It was the sound of unbroken forests and wild, jagged peaks, it was anguish and hatred. That's the third one, said Taylor. First one happened after we killed this thing. There was more of them out there in the trees, and we heard them roar then. That was twenty miles back. We heard another one just before we picked you up, I gasped. That's why it was there, waiting. Yes, Buck said. Now we've heard it again. They're communicating. Reckon they stand on a ridge somewhere, bellow as loud as they can, and on the next ridge over, there's another one listening to the signal. Sound carries up here. There's no cars or skyscrapers or machines, only the sounds of nature. Maybe one can send a message to another ten or twenty miles away, who knows? There could be a whole network, I said, and at that moment an answering howl from the other side of the road turned our blood to ice. Then another, and another, till it seemed that the unseen hills all about us were thick with the creatures. A sick feeling in the pit of my stomach finally turned into a rational thought. The message is spreading faster than we're travelling, I said. They're going to cut us off. The words were hardly out of my mouth before Taylor slammed on the brakes. The truck was forced into a spin. The world tilted with a jolt. I banged my head off the dashboard. Taylor and Buck groaned. They were alive, but pretty smashed up. One wheel was spun, squeaking on a bent axle. I saw what had caused Taylor to jam on. A row of silhouettes blocking the road. Enormous, dome-headed shapes. Ten or more of them. I saw them through blurry, teary eyes and through the cracked window of a vehicle turned sideways. 
a smell like wet moss and grubs and dewy camping mornings crept in through the broken glass. They moved as though in slow motion, with the artless grace of animals. Some of them were small, shorter than me, and these younger ones scrambled towards us first. I could not see their faces, but I heard huge nostrils sniffing, grunting. The smashed cab rattled where their hands shook it. This was it. Our time was up. We knew the truth, and we were about to take it to our graves, our heads crushed by beings who could communicate over hundreds of miles of forest faster than we could. A roar shook the truck. One of the animals was closer than I had thought. In fact, it sounded as though it was inside. Then a tuft of putrid hair filled my mouth as a gigantic elbow pistoned attached to a thrashing arm. The beast from the back of the car bellowed again, so loud this time it felt as though it was rattling every tooth in my head. It was alive. In the confined space, the stench was unbearable. The arm ploughed upwards, tearing the metal like a knife through tinfoil. Injured but furious beyond measure, the nightmare beast pulled itself through the hole. All I could see was a heavy brown bulk. The side of the truck crumpled as it crawled out, and I squashed myself further into a corner to avoid being flattened. Outside, a chorus of hoots and growls filled the night air. Feet scraped, inhuman voices bellowed, and, I swear to God, someone or something knocked on a tree trunk with a stick. Maybe those middle-aged idiots were onto something all along. The racket reached a frenzy, then a drop of rain splashed my face and quickly became a torrent, the kind of rainstorm the Pacific Northwest is famous for. Soon I couldn't hear anything except the hiss of the rain. Even when it had finished and silence yawned outside in the dark woods, I waited a long time before I dared to call for the others and climbed out of the wrecked truck. It turned out we were all okay, though none of us were too sprightly getting out of there. The rain had turned the forest floor on either side of the road to mud, but we found a single footprint and took some pictures of it. We got out of there, limping and stopping frequently. About six in the morning, a passing Chrysler picked us up. We told the driver we'd been in a wreck, didn't say much about anything else. I never told anyone about what happened. My own pictures of the footprint didn't turn out so good. Blurry, like all the best Bigfoot pictures, I guess. I took contact details for Taylor and Buck, said I'd keep in touch, but never did. A couple weeks later, I flew back to Ireland and my Bigfoot adventures seemed pretty irrelevant from then on. I occasionally check out Bigfooter websites. The communities seem to vary between well-meaning and idiotic, though none of them strike me as being particularly well-informed. Taylor and Buck have posted on the message boards of some of the bigger sites, and I've seen a couple of videos on YouTube debunking their photographs of the corpse and the footprints. I'm sure you can find them if you look. And if you're ever in the Pacific Northwest, be nice to any strange creatures you meet there, in case they call their friends. Love, Claire Redfield. That was the Washington Sound Map. That brings this episode to a close. You've been listening to Off the Wagon. This has been one of my unusual and weird paranormal-themed episodes. If you like the new format, uh, let me know. You can contact me on Twitter, like I said earlier, at Strange Ireland is where I can be found occasionally. Uh, I will still, of course, make bad movie episodes, uh, interviews with my friends. If I know anyone who's got an interesting topic or subject, I'll be sure to bring them on the show. Uh, we're always happy to bash a few bad movies and have a beer as well. So you can expect lots of different things from the show going forward. Thanks for listening. 
See you next time.